My boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin out. A place in there, you have your own translation, a place to ask us questions. Everyone else, you can pull out your bulletin or open up your uh, app on your smartphones there or pull, pull out a good old-fashioned Bible and open it up. We're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 8 this morning, looking at verses 26 through 39. We're working our way through um, some of this material about Jesus Christ himself in the middle of Luke. And before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. <clears throat> Oh, Father God, we do gather together to worship and sing to you because you are worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And we do adore you, Father. And now, Lord, as we come before the banquet of your word, followed by the banquet of this sacrament, Lord, we ask that you would fulfill your promise, that you would not only meet us, but that you would grow us up through these means of grace, that we might not only encounter Jesus, but come away changed by that encounter in your word and in the sacrament. <clears throat> well, we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you remember last week, we had the <clears throat> calming of the storm. They're sailing across the, the uh, lake there, the Sea of Galilee. And our, we pick up right after the calming of the storm. Chapter 8, starting at verse 26. This is God's word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man with whom the demons, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. So my phone rang. This was several, several years ago. A friend of mine from Colorado called me and said, you have got to hear this story. I said, okay, shoot. He's part of this very large church, very conservative church, big Colorado Springs PCA church. 
And he said, so, you know, I meet a lot of different people, and I'm constantly bringing these people to church and from different parts of life. And my friend grew up as a native, he's still a Native American, but he grew up in the Native American community. And he was always a little off, but he started coming to church, and he was going through the inquirer's class. He's about to join. And I get a call from him to please come over. I need help. They found me. So, okay, this is weird. So I go to his house. And who has found you? And he looks like he has been beaten black and blue. And I thought this man had been assaulted by a gang. He goes, who has found you? And he said, the demons. They found me. And this man told me the story that he's never, been, he's never shared to my friend. He said, I was raised to be the next shaman in my tribe. I was dedicated to these gods of, of, of our tribe. I was raised doing all these rituals. And when I was 13, they did this weird thing with blood and stuff. And I was given over to these. And I was supposed to be the next shaman. And ever since I've been a, in my early 20s and rejected that lifestyle and tried to not be that person they, they find me, and they beat me up, and I wake up, and I have been beaten up. I don't know what to do about it. I was hoping that going to this church and becoming a Christian would, but what do I do? And so my friend was like, I'm not equipped for this. And so he went to the church, the session of this very large PCA church, who very much, very humbly was like, we are not equipped for this. But they had some missionaries on furlough who had been to some deep parts of Africa who have those scary missionary stories that we all kind of listen to and like, haha, we don't really know if that happened, but okay. They went to them and they got this guy some help. The demon stuff's hard, isn't it? The demon stuff in the Bible is hard. In fact, some of you right now are thinking, didn't you tell us last week to invite our neighbors to today because we're having a cookout? What are you doing? What are these things? Well, the Bible says that there are some angels who chose to rebel against their creator as part of Lucifer's rebellion. And the worldview and narrative of Scripture treats these beings as absolutely real. So there's two errors we can have when it comes to demons. One we can overemphasize and one we can underemphasize. Not every sin, not every psychological disorder, not every foible is the work of a demon. Usually our own mistakes and sins and hang-ups explain our actions. We don't need to blame it on a demon. But we have to be careful because we Presbyterians can fall into this. We so emphasize the own wickedness of our heart, we can forget that there's other influences out there as well. Fallen angels can exploit weaknesses, even gain control over certain individuals changing them and twisting their actions to an evil purpose. This is part of the worldview of Scripture. Now, I know many of you are uncomfortable at this point and just want me to make this go away. But see, what we have here, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because when it comes to demons, we have a clash of worldviews. Is the universe, as our culture tells us, simply a machine with rules, and you learn the rules and you can operate the machine? Or do we live in a life-filled theater that's really the question that the idea of demons puts before us and i love how as he's introducing this text and telling this story luke doesn't try to prove he just states he's a physician and very diagnostically in verse 27 he goes the man had demons like when i say well you know he has the flu or he, he he's got you know rickets his leg is broken he has demons very diagnostic, easy description. Now Luke, again, let's, let's look at this from an from objective standpoint. Luke is a physician. 
he has already, in these first eight chapters of his gospel, he has distinguished between natural physical illnesses that he and Jesus have encountered, that Jesus has healed, and spiritual oppression that Jesus took on. He's already made that distinction between natural stuff and supernatural stuff. Herodotus, famous historian writing four centuries before this stuff, said that most illnesses have a physical or a mental component. Hippocrates, the medical philosopher, you know, the Hippocratic Oath comes from him, he saw all diseases as a result of natural causes. Okay, why am I telling you this? Why this little trip down memory history lane? Because Luke doesn't have an ancient, unsophisticated, superstitious worldview. We in our chronological arrogance kind of just assume they just saw demons everywhere. No, they thought that diseases were caused by natural things just like you do. The ancient view about disease wasn't unsophisticated or superstitious. Luke is writing and he simply could not ignore the realities that took place right in front of him. And we need to be aware of this reality. And we need to put it into the context of what Luke is teaching us. Luke's book, especially the whole of chapter 8, has, from the parable of the soils to the calming of the storm to this has been about our response to God's word. Especially as, as that word is expressed uniquely through Jesus Christ. So this event with this man is in that same context. It's primarily about the response to Jesus, not about the possession Luke wants us to ask at the end of this, who is this Jesus guy? Not, what's with the demonic possession? He doesn't actually care about that. He wants us to ask, who's Jesus? So let's walk through this account together with that question. Who is Jesus? So this narrative starts, this guy runs up to Jesus, and he accosts him as soon as he gets out of the boat. Jesus hasn't really done anything yet as we read the text, and the guy is wailing and writhing in fear before him. Personally, I think the guy saw the calming of the storm. It happens right before this, and here comes this boat, and he's terrified. In fact, Luke wants us to connect the calming of the storm because the storm ends, if you remember last week, with the disciple asking the question, who is this who can command the wind and the sea? And this story begins with the man answering the question in verse 28, Jesus is the son of the most high God. See, these demons have very good theology, better than the disciples at this point, actually. And so Jesus responds to him with a very authoritative, what is your name? And the answer is legion. I love the King James Version, legion, for we are many. Okay, this is a military term for 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So let's split the average. Are they saying there's 5,000 demons in this man? I don't think so. I don't think this is an actual census or a description. I, I think there, there was a mess of demons in this guy, and they chose a military metaphor because they were under attack. Perhaps it was a bluff or a bluster. You better watch out. We can defend ourselves. Regardless, what's important is that it's an overwhelming presence of demons in this man. It's one of the few, of the few records we have of possession, and there are several. This is one of the oddest. Why, why are so many demons stuffed into one person? I mean, think about it from a strategic perspective. If you're Satan and you want to mess up a countryside, wouldn't it, it make more sense to have one demon in a whole mess of people doing stuff than all in one person? You see what I'm saying? What, what's going on here? Why is he doing it this way? Well, I think that we have hints in Luke's narrative, some of the verbiage he uses, and 
the hints are actually found in the story of Jesus' birth. That phrase, look with me at verse 28, that phrase that the demons use to describe Jesus, in verse 28 he says he's the son of the most high God. It's used one other place in Luke's gospel. You might recognize this from Christmas time. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. Luke chapter 1 verse 32. See, one of them, chapter 8, is spoken by fallen angels to Jesus. The other one is spoken by unfallen angels to shepherds about Jesus. And these shepherds then what? They take the report to the manger where Jesus is and proclaim this is who Jesus is. Whereas here the shepherds witness what happens and they run to town. Luke's put some interesting parallels between the, the nativity and this story. And here's, here's what I'm getting at with this. Here's, here's what I think is going on. I want to kind of put your mind in a different, different perspective. Remember these commercials from a couple years ago? About, what, 10 years ago? These Mac versus PC commercials? Remember these? I think we have a picture of this to, to, to remind you of what's going on. Yeah, remember these? Okay, come on. This is class, but this, hey, do you remember these at all? These are like some of the greatest commercials in the history of advertising. Okay, so you got the straight-laced guy who kind of looks like me in a suit. Um, okay, hi, I'm a, I'm a PC. And then you have the hip, cool guy. I should have John Mark up here. Who's, who's, the, who's the Mac guy, right? And they had this series of, of, of commercials. The one that I really want to emphasize, I didn't want to show it to you because I don't think I could for copyright reasons, is there's one where they make home movies. And the PC guy's like, hey, I made this great home movie. And Mac's like, really? Show it to me. And he goes, well, I made one too. And let's see yours. And so the Mac brings out a supermodel. I can't remember her name, but at the time, 10 years ago, everybody knew her name. And she's wearing this nice dress. And the PC's like, oh, wow, that's a really nice home movie. You know what? I'll, I'll, never mind. No, no, I want to see your home movie. And so he brings out a pudgy, middle-aged guy wearing the exact same dress. He's got 5 o'clock shadow wearing the exact same dress. He's like, hey, how you doing? And the, and the commercial ends. So this idea of look at this beautiful thing you can make on a Mac and look at this pitiful impersonation you can do on a PC. Buy an overpriced Mac. But that's what's happening here with this, with this demonic. One's the real thing. One's a pitiful attempt to match it. You see, right after humanity rebelled, all the way back in the story in the garden, God promised he would send somebody to fix the rebellion. He would send somebody to bring peace and to undo the damage and to make it all okay. And he also promised in that moment that person would crush Satan. And the rest of the Old Testament is really this idea of he's coming, he's coming, and Satan throwing everything he can at the nation of Israel, trying to wipe them out, trying to kill those people, trying to stop the bloodline so this he person cannot come. Satan saw the incarnation. He knew it was coming. He heard the words, this child will be the son of the most high God. He knew that Jesus was the promised champion who would crush him. And so what Satan has done in the last ditch effort, I think, is he's stuffed all these demons into one guy to try to like be, well, here's my champion. Maybe he can take him on. It's a pitiful attempt to match the incarnation, to create his own champion. And so we have Jesus on the one hand, and we have a naked, crazy man surrounded by death, teeming with demons on the other. You see, Satan's a liar. He's a twister of reality. He offers people counterfeit hope and counterfeit fulfillment. That's what he does. And he's offered a counterfeit savior and champion in this guy. I want you to think about your own heart. Every struggle we have with temptation, every 
time we endure, it's about the reality promised in the gospel versus the counterfeit Satan promises. For a married person, Satan tempts you that real fulfillment, real joy, is in indulging your desires, not that committed monogamy stuff. For a single person, Satan tempts you that God can't make you whole and happy without a relationship. You can't be content in singleness. You have to have a significant other to find joy and fulfillment and to be whole. God can't fulfill you like that. You can apply it to anything. God makes a promise and Satan offers a counterfeit promise instead. See, Satan is all about putting up counterfeits in front of us so that we will neither worship God nor find our joy in him. And this man is the manifestation of that. And even Satan knows that it's fake. I mean, for all that dark power, the response that these demons have is not confidence before Jesus. It's fear and begging. They know that one day, someday, every knee will bow before Jesus and they will be cast into the torments of what the book of Revelation shows, pictured as a lake of fire. They call it the abyss. Somehow they're going to be destroyed one day, someday. And they ask him, they beg him, please don't command that now. Do you notice that? Not only do they call him the son of the most high God, they say, please don't command us because we have to obey you because you're the son of the most high God. Please give us a different command. They were in the presence of one who is clearly mightier than they, and so they begged to go into a herd of pigs. He gives it, they do, they promptly destroy the pigs, which is weird. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, what was the point of entering them in the first place? I don't know. I don't know. Except this. Jesus tells us that the devil is all about stealing, killing, and destroying. Satan likes death. He just does. He's behind every self-destructive behavior. He's behind the depression and the arrogance that's underneath every suicide. He just wants people to die. And these pigs do what so many people have done. What so many people have been tricked and tempted by Satan to do. Harm themselves, even destroy themselves. That's what Satan wants. He loves for there to be death instead of life. But don't forget, as we're going through this, this passage is about Jesus. It's about the identity of Jesus. It's about our response to Jesus. And there's a hint, even in the death of these pigs, of Jesus' mission. Getting rid of evil is costly. It cannot be swept under the rug. This mass death of the herd of pigs pictures the cost of purging evil. Ultimately, evil will only be destroyed by the death of the champion of God. So these pig tenders, the word he uses here makes it very clear these are hired hands. These are not the owners of the pigs. So they see their entire herd go off like, we didn't do this. We need to go report this now. And so they go run. This guy showed up, made the crazy guy calm, and all of a sudden the pigs went crazy. We didn't do it. Y'all got to come see this. The whole town comes out. The shepherds, they don't care about this encounter with Jesus. They said they run away. The whole town comes. They see Jesus, and their response to Jesus is fear. So the demons encounter Jesus, they're afraid. The shepherds see Jesus, they're afraid. The townsfolk see Jesus, they're afraid. And what's really interesting is what causes their fear. 
the local madman changed into a respectable citizen. When they see him, they're afraid. Look with me at verse 35. Look what he says. When the people went out to see what happened, they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. He was a naked, grave-dwelling lunatic until his encounter with Jesus. And their response to, to his salvation is fear. And just like the demons, they start begging. And, and so perversely, what do they beg? They beg, will you please leave? Will you please go away? You see, when a person really gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, not just what he can do for you, but actually who Jesus is, the power and the beauty of God himself, many people want nothing to do with that Jesus. I mean, based on the recognition of the healing we see in this text, these people should have been like those on the other side of the lake we saw last time who begged Jesus to stay and brought people to to do more healing. And wow, God's doing something amazing. Let's bring our friends who need healing. They, They see healing, they're like, you need to go. You see, those relatively familiar with Christianity but not actually converted often freak out at evidence of redemption. So to our culture, this, this is how our culture reacts to the gospel so often. I could even dare say this is how many here today might react to the gospel. Give me advice. Give me a lift up for the week ahead. Give me moral kids. But don't give me the all-powerful, storm-calming, demon-commanding Lord of creation who demands my worship. Don't give me that guy. See, the town folk fear him because he shows up as that Jesus. And you can't be neutral about that Jesus. And they see this man who all of a sudden is in his right mind. He's tasted the world that's to come. The world that Jesus promises. And there's, there's no more pain in this man. There's, there's no more futility. There's no more dysfunction. There's no more evil. He's, he's whole. He, we could say he reeks of the world that's to come to his community. And it's frightening to them. And they want him to go. In that fear, they reject the Lamb of God himself, the one who could heal them. Oh, dear flock, do we reek to our community like that? Is our Jesus so real and so powerful? Not the mascot we say grace to before football games and at public gatherings, but the Lord who demands our worship. Is that the Jesus we show to our neighbors? Is it that powerful Jesus? Or is it something else? Deep down, we're afraid that we will be treated like this town treated Jesus. Go away. We, we don't want anything to do with that. And in that fear, we often don't show that Jesus. And so finally, Luke shows us now how this healed man responds. He's seated right there. He's learning at Jesus' feet. He's communing with Jesus. And he responds as well. The demons have begged. The townsfolk have begged. And now this guy begs from Jesus. Let me stay with you. Take me with you. He begs to be with Jesus. I mean, the demons begged, and it was granted. The townsfolk begged, and it's granted. Jesus is leaving. And so he begs. And the new baby 
Christian is the only one in the story that Jesus says no to. He wanted to be with the one who had healed him and changed him. And Jesus says, no, you can't come with me. Stay here and plant a church. Jesus calls him to community outreach. He's told to declare, and so he preaches with fervency. I mean, can you imagine this guy's testimony? I mean, I, I have a very boring testimony. I have to tell you, okay, my parents, uh, we moved from Wyoming to Tennessee. The neighbors across the street invited us to church. We went to church. After about a year of the preaching of the word, I felt the, I felt the weight of my sin and guilt before a holy God, and so I confessed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the resurrected Lord. I said, I have nothing on my own I bring. I cling to Jesus alone because I got nothing. I can't perform for you. I can't earn my own forgiveness. I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as my Savior. And you know what? I, I was like 15. I hadn't killed anybody. I hadn't done much. You know, I had pretty strict parents to begin with. Didn't have a chance to be that evil. That's my testimony. That's not very exciting, right? Which is, by the way, the kind of testimony I beg my kids to have. I hope you do too. I want my kids to have a very boring testimony. Thank you very much. This guy, though, man, I was naked, living in the tombs, beating people up, breaking chains, all sorts of voices in my head, and Jesus fixed it all. Really? He can do that for you too. See, this man has experienced real grace, deep transformation. And so he is a Jesus-proclaiming machine. This is what it looks like to be a missionary, by the way. All Christians are called to be missionaries right where we are. You've experienced grace, and so you tell about that grace. Oh, if we struggle to tell about that grace, or if we flat just don't tell about that grace, we have to ask ourselves, have we actually encountered that grace? See, this passage tells us something about ourselves. This tells us something about Jesus as well. He left this area per their wishes, but he did not abandon the region. He left them an indigenous missionary to plant a church. What a great picture of Jesus' grace, even to those who spurn him. And you realize every one of us in the room has spurned Jesus. And in his grace, he does not abandon us, thank God. That lying counterfeiter, Satan, he whispers to us, doesn't he? Jesus is so tired of your failures. You have pushed the limits of grace too far. You cannot be forgiven again for the same sin. Are you kidding me? You have worn out God. You're too bad. It's over. Forget it. And that is a lie because Satan is a lying counterfeiter who wants you to be depressed and destroy yourself. This passage shows even if we kick Jesus out, he still extends grace to us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Who is this man who can do that? Who is this man who can calm a storm? And who is this man who can do this and have such grace? If we had this power, we would not be that humble. We would, oh, you're going to kick me out? Well, let me show you what I can do. Right? Thank God he's not like us. We would get worn out. You're coming to me again. Didn't you just apologize for that like 37 seconds ago? No, I'm not going to forgive you again. Jesus like, yes, already paid for, yes. What an amazing gospel. Who is this man who can say these things and do these things? 
what do we do with this? How does this minister to us today? What, how do we, what do we appropriate from this? Well, one, as I've been saying here, it, it, it teaches us the reality of forgiveness. If we're honest about our own secret evil, we know that underneath our nice suburban normalcy, that we are a seething, crazy person bent on self-destruction. And if we're really candid, actually, we should probably be chained up every once in a while. But we can be healed and forgiven, and many of us have been anyway. And so we can cast off fear and guilt and unbelief, and we can rest in the acceptance that Jesus Christ has given to crazy people like us. That's what the gospel is. Grace to crazy people who don't earn it or don't deserve it. Which leads us to our second thing to take home from this is this. This teaches us about meeting sinners where they are. One of my favorite aspects about this passage is this. Jesus didn't say to the man, man, stop living in the tombs. What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Yes, we are crazy. Quit acting all crazy then. Just stop. Get some clothes on and then we'll chat, okay? So no tombs, straighten up, get some clothes, and then come see me. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? At all. He addresses the real spiritual problem, and then all those things fall into place. Don't many of us default to a clean up and then come to Jesus mentality? We do, don't we? Jesus likes to save normal people, so be normal and then come to Jesus. In reality, that's not true. We like to be around normal people, so we talk to people who are like us, and people who are kind of not like us, kind of, you know, crazy. Uh, the Pentecostal can talk to them. You see, the encounter with Jesus has to come first. Jesus heals the man's heart. He sets him free from prison. And then the man is, quote, normal. That's the power of the gospel. And we need to believe in that gospel to change people. Because rooted in that belief, we will be the missionaries we're supposed to be. And other than that, we will see big change happens. If you want your culture to change then that means the people who make up the culture need to change. And if you want the people who make up the culture to change, then the people need to be changed by something powerful. Let me give you a really good example. I think you should probably have an opinion on abortion. I think you should probably vote that opinion on abortion. And I bet that most of you have the opinion you have about abortion because of what Jesus has done. And yet we get mad and angry at people who have a different position when we know they don't know Jesus. Why do we do that? If we have our opinion because of what Jesus has done, shouldn't we talk to them about Jesus first and then maybe abortion or LGBT stuff or anything else? You see, we get distracted by this thing instead of going, no, let's go below this. Let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about who is Jesus to you. I don't care about what you think about bathroom signage. Who's Jesus? But we do care about bathroom signage. That's what we get excited about. But instead, this text reminds us, talk about Jesus. And then the other stuff falls into place. Have we simply proclaimed Jesus? When was the last time you proclaimed the love of Jesus to another person? That's the question he wants us to ask. 
to wrestle with. Who is Jesus that he might be proclaimed? Let's pray together.